You're listening to Homicide Worldwide. Your hosts, Sally and Keto, would like to remind our listeners the episodes deal with crimes that are graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Homicide Worldwide listeners, all of us over here at Homicide Worldwide Podcast would like to thank you for coming back each week. We see that you are spreading the word and that our body count is growing. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're kind of on Facebook. If you have an idea for an episode, send us an email to homicideworldwidepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join our moms in supporting the show, check out our Patreon. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen and please leave a five-star review. It really helps out the show. For source material, don't forget to check out the show notes. Truth is often stranger than fiction, and in tonight's case is no exception. In fact, it's a prime example of why the saying exists. Tonight's adventure to France, and then to Japan, was a suggestion from our pal Tiny over at Nerd It Through the Grapevine podcast. It's a pretty rare occasion that we are lost for words around here, so nice job, Tiny. I, for one, am still trying to collect myself after the jaw-dropping things I learned while researching this episode. At the very least, I have finally stopped uncontrollably rocking myself in the corner of the shower. In all seriousness, this case is almost impossible to write an introduction for, because you just have to hear the story. To believe this crime and the four decades that have followed it are even real. One thing became extremely evident while researching. The murder of the person, Renee Hartfelt, who had a life and a bright future, has taken a backseat to the photographs of her mutilated corpse that had been defiled in so many ways. Her memory, forever inextricably linked to being cannibalized. Certainly, as time has worn on, the spotlight that has been on Issei has become the story, and the idea that he is walking free with no kind of supervision and continues to have the urge to eat human flesh is beyond comprehension. The one glaring, unanswerable question that begs to be answered How could Issei Sagawa be a free man when he openly admitted to the crimes against Renee Hartfeld? There is no way to justify it. There is no taking it back at this point. He has grown into an old man. Thanks to the dumbest legal technicality ever, Issei has had the opportunity to become semi-famous and profit from his crime. He has traveled the world and lived life, and he's had many experiences that many of us will never see. We can only hope that he will never again act on these urges that he still has. He's old now and weak, but he is certainly still dangerous. This is episode 39 of Homicide Worldwide.
Sally. Hello, Keita. Here we are together again on this lovely amalgam. Here we are. I'm your co-host, Keita. And I am your co-host, Sally. Thanks for joining us. We are so excited that you're back with us tonight at Homicide Worldwide. And good evening and to our fellow listeners. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I say fellow um, because I listen to my own podcast. <laughs> you should. <laughs> it's not weird unless you jerk off to it. Totally. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. This is episode 30 freaking nine. Dude, we're going to be 40 next time. It's amazing that we're coming up in our, our midlife of this podcast. And, and I'm happy to go back to Japan because as some listeners might know, I have a lovely connection with Japan. I lived there for two years, loved being there. It was an amazing place despite the difficulties of culture shock. Uh-huh. And I have wonderful, fond memories of it. And Japan's also got some funny little quirks, you know, some quick little funny little quirks. I really liked this one because it straddles two countries. It's not in France the whole time. It was just Mm kind of cool that it crosses over between two countries and how the two countries didn't work well together. They did not play. They did not. And so we start in Japan with our murderer. But as Kita said, France comes into play because the murder itself happens in beautiful Paris, France. Mm. Hey, Paris. <laughs> so how do you even begin with this case? Mm-hmm. We got this case suggestion, like I said, from Tiny over at uh, Nerd It Through the Grapevine. As soon as I heard it, I was like, mm, I want to check this out. I was yep. like, I was reading it and I was like, what the fuck? It checks a lot of your boxes, Keita. <laughs> it's got We've everything. Got <laughs> we got a little cannibalism. Yeah, dude, Tiny. Yep. I'm going to buy this guy a beer. Seriously. Thank you, Tiny. That was an excellent recommendation. (laughs) Something about him. Well, I mean, geez, Louise, this one, especially one of the size, he's like fun size. But at the same time, like he's also had like some really interesting life experiences Mm -hmm. where it's like that's the, the shit that like a lot of people dream to do. We'll get into it. But the things that he's done and been able to experience are really just mind blowing. He's writing his notoriety around the world. Well, he did. Now he's dying slowly. So, ha ha. But mean, previous to that, he lived the life that Renee should have lived. Yeah, that was like uh, the thought that I kept having. I'm like, man, like. Without all the weird sex videos. Exactly. You know, that's, she should have lived a full life and she should have had a lot of experiences and she didn't get to because she encountered this man. As we get into this story, we are going to unpack all the super weird, random things that have happened and get into the last 40 years. But first, we start mm-hmm. with his childhood. His childhood. Because it always is rooted in the childhood. It absolutely is. And Issei Sagawa was born about four years after the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about World War II and Japan, you will know that Japan at the end of World War II was a lot of rubble, mm-hmm. especially the big cities. A few were spared, but most of them were just flattened. And so there was a lot of privation in addition to a lot of black market, a lot of people having to wheel and deal, a lot of PTSD, a lot of extremely bad uh, war injuries where people couldn't really contribute to the economy and needed to be cared for. And so this was a time where a lot of people in Japan didn't have very much. But his parents did. They absolutely did. He was in a situation where his family was sheltered from what was going on more widely in Japan at the time. 
And he was born very little. He was born about six weeks premature, which is not that much by modern standards. I mean, my sister was born six weeks premature. And apart from being a little on the short side, she's adorable sized. And she's also not a fucking cannibalistic killer. There's also that. There's that. Yeah. Um, Way to go. I'm just assuming that that's the case, but I'm pretty sure. (laughs) We're we're assuming that she's not a cannibalistic killer, but do you really have proof that she isn't? I don't have that kind of proof. I mean, you can't really make that statement then, can you? Story kind of writes itself. (laughs) So he was born in 1949 and he grew up very small and kind of weedy. In his early years, he developed enteritis, an inflammation of the intestine, which is accompanied by diarrhea. No fun at all. He had potassium and calcium and saline injections that were meant to treat this. He grew up, like I said, small, a little undersized, and he felt himself that he was unattractive. He's not on the wrong side. I did feel for him, though, because when you grow up feeling like you're sort of the small, little, unattractive gnome then yeah he is i don't know i totally get that there's a, a standard for men that is you know very large and muscular and beefy with wide shoulders and you know i totally get that and especially with regard to height there's a lot of discrimination against short men i get that if you are born a very very slight man you should become a jockey that would have been a much better fit. I mean, when he was born, he was so tiny he could fit in the palm of his father's hand. That's exactly right. A jockey like would a- have been the perfect career for him. He was cut out for it. He was the mm-hmm. fucking right size at four foot nine. I mean, he was like a shoe in had he, he just been like stayed on the right course. Come to Santa Anita. You're exactly. going to win all the fucking races. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, but you don't become a killer. You don't eat people. You become a jockey. But that's not what his choice was. He had a fascination about cannibalism from a young age. And there was a couple of different moments in his childhood that he references as the sort of genesis moment of these. The quivering thigh of a classmate, maybe? It was in the first grade of elementary school when I saw the quivering meat on a male classmate's thighs. And I suddenly thought, mm, that looks delicious. A male classmate. But mm-hmm. in his words, he's not a homosexual. So it wasn't a homosexual urge. It was an urge to eat a thigh. I'm just but more no. about like you were having cannibalistic thoughts at the age of six. It does seem young. Yeah. That really deserves a moment to just kind of hover there for a second because that is, I mean, he had to keep it a secret. Obviously, he couldn't share this with anybody. I mean, he's not going to tell, you know, little fucking Timmy over here that he's wanting to eat his thigh. What's interesting to me is that most six-year-olds don't really know that cannibalism is a thing that can happen in the world. So A, he had to know that eating people was something that was possible. Yeah. I remember when I kind of realized that people could be eaten. I remember I was like watching Jaws. But that's a shark. So, but but also, but it was this idea of like, oh my God, we are meat. We're edible. We're meat like a cow is meat. We're meat like a pig is meat. Like we're fancy meat with fancy brain, but we're still just kind of meat. And we can be eaten raw as we find out. Oh God. In addition <laughs> to the, the, the quivering meat on a male classmate's thighs, mm-hmm. There was another moment that Issei Sagawa had in his childhood, and it came from a dream that he had. So one night he dreamt that he and his brother were being boiled in a pot to be eaten. 
And we've all had had those dreams, right? Those dreams that stay with us. I've had a couple of dreams in my life that I can vividly remember. Mm -hmm. And this was like, it was like that for him. And you listeners can probably think, oh yeah, I remember that dream when I was, you know, the riding that dog and then my hair was on fire. Okay, great. You're going to remember that forever. This was like that for him. And from that point on, he says, he began to fantasize about how it would be to eat another human rather than be eaten. Another thing that he attributes to his issue with cannibalism and the desire in which to eat a human, he says that he was never given the talk by his parents and the that is the sexual talk by his parents. And so when he popped his first boner mm. at whatever young age that was, evidently it scared him. Uh-oh. It's Uh-oh. like if you haven't been told that you're going to get your period and then you just start I randomly mean, yeah. bleeding from your lady parts. That's yeah. a bit of a surprise. Apparently, he didn't know how to handle it. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yeah. And so I have a very hard time keeping my dinner down when I think of that because it's absolutely disgusting. Pretty unfortunate. But evidently, you know, I mean, as nature takes hold and you figure things out, turns out he didn't really need the birds and the bees talk because he figured some shit out on his own. He kind of, you know, played with some ideas, figured out that there was a a magical way to release himself. And Mm -hmm. apparently his childhood dog would give the occasional (gasps) assist. No, no, mm -hmm. no. Yeah. Yeah. Poor pepperoni. Good job. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Thank you. The occasional assist. Yep. Yeah. With his velvety dog tongue. Oh, no. Sorry. Hey, man, don't shoot the messenger, man. I just, you know, (laughs) don't hate the player, hate the game. Well, you know, there's an advantage there to him having extremely small junk. As we will find out, I didn't actually dive into, not to get too far ahead, but, you know, there's a little porn action later on. And, you know, as the internet provides so much, there were some photos. I have to just say that is just so incredibly disappointing. Yes. No wonder he's angry. He's remember he's four foot nine. Let's just say everything is proportional. Got it. Because if he had a giant dick and he got a boner, he would probably pass out from blood loss to the brain. The distribution of blood in your body can't survive the kind of massive loss that a huge boner would engender. Yeah. I mean, it's science. Can't argue with it. Can't argue with science. (laughs) You can't. Who be it for me to argue with science? Uh -uh. Mm -mm. So uh, from an early age, he had these fantasies about cannibalism of surprisingly early age. Yeah. And the target of his fantasies increasingly was not Japanese girls or his male classmate who had that quivering thigh. That quivering <laughs> that description quivering thigh. of a quivering thigh. And you know, quivering. it's just such a good description too, because you can totally imagine it. You know whose thighs I really imagine quivering? God please say Daniel Craig. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know why that thing came off so disgusted, but it was just not what I was going to say. Did you ever watch Criminal Minds? I did not yet. Oh, okay. Well, Hotch, Aaron Hotchner. You know, he's got this really dark hair and this like very fair skin. And mm-hmm. I always imagined him to have these really milky white thighs. And mm-hmm. when I think of a quivering male thigh, all mm-hmm. I can think of is this mm-hmm. very milky white quivering Hotch thigh. thigh. That, like I said, he has really dark hair, but the quivering white thigh would have very dark leg hair. 
Mm, that's that, a very specific imagining. <laughs> that's how I imagined it. Our producer is over there shaking his head. He's kind of like his head tilted to the side slightly. Like what a, did she just say? So he had this desire to eat women mm. who were specifically this kind of Teutonic, Northern European, Germanic ideal. So it was usually large, blonde, pale-skinned ladies. Yeah, and when we say large, we mean like tall, like model-esque. Right. Sort like of a like Heidi a, Klum. Heidi Klum, exactly. Something, something very Nordic. Those people get like broad and tall, but they don't really usually get like chunky because they're like always skiing and like climbing down. Always skiing. <laughs> oh my God, they're so fucking active and they're like always like tanned, even though they're like blonde and it's like the North, but they're like perfect. They're and it's like, ice cold. Like, how are you so tan? No, they're the Brazilians of fucking Europe. It's just not normal for that many people to be that good looking. So he wasn't really interested in the Japanese women. He had kind of become fascinated with some American women. It was particularly Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly. Yeah. And what an ideal, though. I mean, she's so feminine. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got that perfect, like, hourglass shape, that, like, gorgeous blonde hair, and that, like, ridiculous face. Well, okay. So his obsession initially was to just to bite. Like, mm-hmm. I think little six-year-old Issei, you know, how, how much of cannibalism he understood at six years old is a little bit up for debate, I think, because you're six. That's right. But he definitely wanted to bite. He was like a bitey kid. A little nibbler. Yeah. A nibbler. Yeah. Like, he wanted to gnaw on them. As time has gone on, he has recognized this as part of a sexual act, not a hunger. So it's not like satiating because, you know, oh, shit, my blood sugar dropped and now I'm hangry. I better eat a person. It's <laughs> it's, it's not, not like me you know, after working all day long. Human. Yeah. And I'm just like, God damn it. Just fucking feed me. <laughs> His was just like a gnawing, like a little. I don't know if it's like a playful gnawing on the flesh, but mm-hmm. evidently that was more his jam in terms of it being like a sexual act. Interesting. So yeah, that was, it wasn't a hunger for starving. But he learned that if he did not handle his business with or without the assist of his dog, that the urge to bite women or gnaw them would become stronger. He views cannibalism as an extension of wanting to be next to a woman and has, in fact, actually kind of compared it to kissing. Um, Not totally seeing how he's connected the dots on that one, but... See, the thing about kissing is when you're done with kissing, you get your lips back. It's kind of a mutual agreement that you it's just... It's a mutual agreement that the parts the person's that you share, off. you get them back at the end. As yeah. the kissy, you're not required to hand anything over permanently. That would be the part where those two really diverge for me, Issei. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's not canoodling on the couch when you're eating the tip of somebody's nose and crunching through their cartilage, friendo. Oh, right. God, you know, that's just, you've crossed the line. Yeah. But he had this very strong academic bent. So he learned English very well and he went into English literature after he graduated high school. In about 1972... He had been studying at a university in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And during that time, he had really noticed this tall German woman who also studied 
at this university in Tokyo. Oh, yes. And she was just everything he had desired, but just in the flesh. So he started to pay a lot more attention to this woman and kind of tracked her movements and learned where she lived. One day he followed her home, and this was in the evening. Her door was open. This is in the day when you left your door open, though. And this is also Japan. Yeah. So here's the thing about Japan. When you open a person's door, there's an entryway, and the entryway is called a genkan. And the genkan is public space, even though it's inside your house. There's always a step up into a Japanese house, even if it's just a tiny step, it's a symbolic step. And that step means that you are inside. But when you're in the genkan, you are technically outside. And I know this because the first day that I woke up in Japan, I could hear little kids. And what? I came out of my bedroom and the two little children across the road had come into my front door, which was totally legit. And they had kept their feet in the Genkan, which was totally legit. And they were leaning forward with their hands like on the steps and looking down my hallway and like trying to like see in my house. I was like, what the I had to remember, that's absolutely legit. Nothing they did. I mean, it's not kind of being little dicks but like oh yeah the in so the inside is is still outside until you step up so if, if someone has a delivery for you they'll just knock on your door and they'll just come right in they won't wait for you to answer the door so having your door open in japan your front door open is extremely normal I've lived in America yeah, my entire life and I just have been paranoid from the get-go so I'm yeah, like you know the more be. locks the better that's right. Fucking barricade herself in, <laughs> iron doors. It's like, get smart when we get home at the night. Yeah, I have a freaking yeah. like um, barbed wire wrapped fucking bat at my door like Lucille in The Walking like Dead. Like chunks of other of previous victims yeah. flesh still hanging off the nails. Like, just try it. What happened this is them? not yeah, a yeah. Con, motherfucker. No, this is not Japan. No. A, a locked door means fuck off. <laughs> so anyway, he just walks in and it's nighttime and she's asleep. His intention... It's just, now think about the incredible lack of ability to think through a situation. His intention is just to slice off a little part of her buttocks and just take away a small part of her flesh. Yeah, just sneak off into the night with it. Just sneak off because nobody's going to notice it when you cut off a part of their body while they're sleeping. Think it's a horrible, horrible dream only to wake up that that perfect ass is no longer... That's right. She'll be like, oh, my God, somebody cut a piece of my body off while I was asleep. I, how could this have happened? I wish I'd woken up during it. No, this is not how it works. He say, <laughs> you can't just sneak in and cut off a part of a person. No. So, of course, she hears him rustling around like a creepy little asshole <laughs> in her bedroom. She wakes up and she gets fucking Teutonic on his ass, man. She stands up. She pushes him the fuck down. And she's like, get the fuck out of my house. She's like, I'm twice your height, you say. Yeah, I can snap you. <laughs> And I will. And it would have been great if she had. God. She pushes him to the ground. She calls the police. The police arrest him. He's charged with attempted rape. Yeah. Cleverly on his part, Mm -hmm. he did not reveal his true intentions to the police. Really smart, you say. Really smart. Well, I I broke in because I was planning on eating just a little tiny, just a little part of her. So so the the real reason I was there, sir. Exactly. So he'd rather have gotten off with attempted rape. As happens in Japan, this is very standard that a settlement can be paid and then the charges will be dropped. That's not uncommon. And that happened in this situation. So 
the woman in question was paid a settlement by very wealthy family mm-hmm. of Issei Sagawa. Yes. It's worth noting that Sagawa's great-grandfather was one of the editors of the mm. um, Asahi Shimbun, which mm-hmm. is a very famous newspaper in Japan. And his dad was a really successful business person. Was a president of a company called Kurita Water Industries. Yeah. And his parents were loving. And for the most part, what I can find is he had a really unaffected childhood. He had a brother, Mm -hmm. two loving parents who were supportive. I mean, they were strict and had expectations, but they weren't Mm -hmm. abusive like other people we've talked about. It doesn't feel like there was specifically any targeted abuse about his size. No. Especially from his accounts that there was any mocking or, you know, denigration of him regarding his size and his appearance. No, it kind of seemed like all the, you know, insecurity that surrounded his size was sort of his own insecurity that Mm -hmm. he had sort of just given himself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm sure childhood buddies were not always kind. They experiment with the power of words to affect other people. And it's a normal developmental phase. And some people don't outgrow it. Um, (laughs) Anyway, though, so he was able to pay off this woman and the charges were dropped. But there was still this kind of scandal around what had happened. And so his dad engineered a a cover up through this payment and then had his son arranged to go to school in Paris. As you do. Just get the hell out for a little bit. Yeah. Till things cool off. At this point, he had also been assessed by mental health professionals in Japan. Uh And they had said that dangerous tendencies were observed in him from psychosis to psychopathy. Why don't people listen when Uh a diagnosis or a statement like that is made? These people know what they're fucking talking about. Especially something like that. Oh, no, he's fine. He's okay. He's not doing anything. You know, we're just probably overreacting. No, we're not fucking overreacting. He literally eats a girl. And when a mental health professional tells you that your child has something like psychopathic tendencies. Don't ignore it. For a person of that profession to say something like that is a big fucking deal. And so when you say to a parent, I think your child might be a psychopath. It takes a lot for a fucking mental health professional to say that. It's not a light diagnosis. And he was also not like a child child. He was in his early 20s. Like he was, he was a fucking adult. Even though he was four foot nine, he didn't look like it, but he was an adult. It's not like a, like a guessing game. You have like a seven year old who, you know, put a fucking tack through a spider, but they're really a good person at the end of the day, you know, and they were just fucking around. Mm -hmm. He was an adult male. Yeah. Red flag. Red flag. And so when you have a professional who tells you something that way, you got to listen to it. But rich people don't have to listen to the advice of professionals when they can just pay money to make reality bend the way that they want to. He's like, I make more money than you. You don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. I can pay the world to believe me over you. Yeah, exactly. I'll have your license. (laughs) Here we are now. In beautiful Paris, the year is 1977. So Issei Sagawa has gotten his master's degree in English Lit from Kwansei Gakuin University. And yes, now he's in beautiful Paris, France. In the Sorbonne, no less, of extremely prestigious university, perhaps one of the most prestigious universities in the world. 
and he is now pursuing a PhD in literature. Yeah, he's not a stupid person. Even if your dad's paying to sort of smooth the way for you, you can't be a dummy and go to the Sorbonne. And part of that is because he was very introverted as a child, partially due to his size and his multitude of health issues that he had, he became very focused on reading and writing and school and things mm-hmm. of that nature. And sort of so the world of the mind. Yeah. And so he was, you know, he came by honestly and he was he was an intelligent. He still is an intelligent individual, albeit that he is a complete fucking psychopath. <laughs> there is that. Yeah. So he'd never forgotten that he'd come so close to fulfilling his fantasy way back in Tokyo when he'd broken into the German lady's apartment. And he really felt that preparation was the missing element here. Mm. And like a Boy Scout, he believed that preparation would be the key to making his dream of eating a woman come true. And he kind of practiced a little bit. He practiced on prostitutes. He didn't ever kill a prostitute, but he got as close as he possibly could. He would bring a prostitute home almost every night. Almost every night? How much money is that? You say? I I think it's probably a lot. I would think so. Dad's at this point probably going, at least he's on the other side of the world. Have as much money. I don't even want to know what you're spending it on, buddy. Yeah, exactly. So preparation is the key. And Issei really jumps on board this concept. (laughs) So he's practicing on prostitutes. And the way he's practicing looks Mm. like this. And I can tell you because this is in his own words. After I went to study in Paris, my cannibalistic urges showed no signs of slowing down. Almost every night I would bring a prostitute home and then try to shoot them from behind while they wash their key to cover your ears vaginas. Come on. And I said, cover your ears. I have headphones on. <laughs> I tried hundreds of times, but for some reason, my fingers froze up and I couldn't pull the trigger. From around that time, it became less about wanting to eat them, but more an obsession with the idea that I simply had to carry out this ritual of killing a girl no matter what. Yet for some reason... I failed so many times to pull the trigger. It's hand weakness, asshole. Rather than morals (laughs) and whatnot, it was instinct that stopped my hand from moving. Somewhere in my mind, I knew that I and the world I lived in would shatter to pieces the moment I pulled that trigger. And he's not wrong. I mean, he knows that it's, it's the end of everything, more or less. But he's sort of standing behind them, these prostitutes, as they're, you know, cleaning up their business at the bidet. As you do. do, Right. And he's standing behind them with this rifle that he's purchased pointed at the back of their heads as they're, you know, taking care of things. And they're quite obviously, you know, consumed by that moment and what they're doing. Uh And so they don't notice he's standing behind them with a fucking gun to the back of their heads. And they never know. They never find out. They never find out. So he did this many, 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 many times. Yes. This moment of almost killing, but not quite. Mm-hmm. And then just putting the rifle. It's amazing that nobody turned around and was like, what the fuck are you doing with that rifle? Asshole? I had that same exact thought. Like, wouldn't you instinctually, like, you know, you kind of know if somebody's standing behind you or too close to you or whatever. And you I kind of look over he, your shoulder. Uh, my <sighs> guess is that after the first 10 Vahine washings, 
that he kind of <laughs> your face that, that he kind of had a sense for how long that process takes. I don't want to do the math on this or get too involved. But anyway, he this is what he says happened. And he was the only person who can, you know, really attest to this. So yeah. this is what we got. While he's in Paris in 1981, like we said, he's studying, he sees another tall, beautiful Northern European woman from the Netherlands. And her name is Renee Hartvelt, which sounds so much like heartfelt. It just, I don't know. When you see her, she's just the most beautiful, She really, lively, really is. She's just a stunning woman physically, but she's just like radiates life and vitality and mm-hmm. health and she has these big bright eyes exactly she's just like a a very full of life person which is of course why he was attracted to her right so she was in one of his classes Uh, he sat next to her in class and he says he fell instantly in love and could not stop thinking about her arms this white skin of her arms that were like so close to him and he was just kind of obsessed and fixated on her arms she became in his mind this a perfect woman for what he wanted to do but like we said in the manner of a boy scout a very evil boy scout uh-huh. Issei Sagawa sort of devises this long-term plan to get close to Renee Hartvelt Renee as we said is just this beautiful person she's 25 She's tall, gorgeous. She's independent. She speaks three languages. She's got a bright future. She wants to get a a PhD in French literature and she speaks German. So as one of his classmates, Issei, he kind of approaches her and asks her if she will teach him German. And his dad, who's rolling in cash, could pay her well. And so she said, okay, well, you seem like a nice guy. He really did. He was able to present himself as kind of a a nice, quiet, introverted, extremely intelligent. She's like, I'm at Um, least three feet taller than you. You're harmless. Right. You're harmless. I can take you down if I need to. So like she does, she's not feeling at all threatened. Mm -hmm. And so she accepts. Yeah. And so she becomes his German tutor. And then after a while, they kind of become friends. She really likes that they exchange a lot of ideas. They're both very intelligent. He can discuss everything from art and impressionism mm. to Shakespeare. Yeah, he's got European some culture. Literature. And he's probably, you know, a little exotic too by virtue of being Japanese. But she's not really feeling it the way he's feeling it. And he starts to write her love letters. He invites her to concerts and exhibits. Even though he wasn't really her type, she enjoyed being with him. So she would often go with him. They're kind of buddies. And she will even invite him over to her apartment and have tea with him. And they dance together. And he still has this feeling of wanting to possess her. And he really believes that he loves her. He does believe this in a very twisted kind of way. A very twisted kind of way. But right from the start, she was this this perfect person for his fantasies. She fit everything that he wanted. Issei Sagawa really laid down a foundation of a friendship. And that's what he meant by preparation. And I'm sure he enjoyed her company and, and he did feel like he loved her. But all of this friendship that he created and developed and the dancing and the drinking tea and the concerts and the exhibits, it was all intended to create in her a sense of trust and comfort with him so that he could get her 
exactly where he wanted her to be. Finally, one night, he does this. So on the evening of June 11th, 1981, Issei has created a plan for how he will kill Renee. His plan is that he will invite her over for dinner. He will ask her to read a poem by his favorite German expressionist. He wanted to record her doing this. This was his pretense for her sort of sitting in one place, engaged with something. He's not a dumb man. He understands that he needs her to be very fixed on something. And so reading a poem into a cassette recorder... And then while she's doing that, he plans to shoot her in the back of the neck. And that's just how it pans out. Yes. And a couple of nights prior to that, uh, Issei had invited her over to his house and he had the same plan in place, but he couldn't make it happen because when she was in position and she was reading the poetry, he went to go and pull the trigger as you do when you're trying to murder somebody from behind, but the gun misfired and Mm -hmm. it didn't happen. It freaked him out. And so he put it away. And that was that. It was the two days later when he had her over that he thought this time he was really going to go through with this. Mm -hmm. And that is when he actually committed the murder, but it was actually meant to happen two days prior. And in that visit two days prior, after she left he smelled and licked the place where she had sat. Well, that's what I do every time you come over. I think it's weird yeah, that you wouldn't do that if I came over to your house, but I know. Whatever. How could we be bonded? How could we find each other like in the dark, you know, in a situation no. where we only have our sense of smell? What I don't have your scent on my person or in my nostrils. It's like we, it's like we barely exist to each other. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he was definitely planning on moving forward with this murder and and all the things that he told her all the stories about needing a tutor and everything was just one big lie in order to get her to come over because when he saw her he knew that she was the one that he was going to eventually murder and eat and so when he shot her on June 11th when it finally actually worked out and he got up the nerve to do it shot her from behind as she was sitting at the desk reading the poetry and it was an instant kill the bullet didn't actually have an exit wound and according to Issei she died immediately maybe, maybe not we don't know that So, if no exit wound from a rifle at short range makes me believe that there was probably massive internal brain injuries which quite honestly given what followed we can be somewhat grateful for that if a person is going to die or be murdered that at least it's extraordinarily fast. You hope that it was fast. You hope that there Mm -hmm. was no suffering. According to Issei, there was no suffering at all. And Mm -hmm. he went to work. And at first he he really scared himself with this. Yeah, he freaking fainted. Yeah, he freaking fainted. Mm -hmm. Just all little four foot nine of him, just in a little. (laughs) Sorry, I was like, grow a pair, dude. Exactly. I just had this image of him like putting the back of his wrist on his forehead and like gently drifting onto a sofa, Victorian style. Exactly, like a little Mm -hmm. like chase lounge or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. settee, 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 
lace everywhere <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. yeah i just like totally envision him just kind of like this oh moment yeah. and then like he just drops to the floor less of a faint and more of a swoon so dramatic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just so dramatic the whole thing so of course when you're planning on eating somebody the first thing you have to do is you have to undress them after when you wake up from fainting after you emerge from your swoon, blinking <laughs> childlike in back into the world, and you're like, oh, that's right, I killed with somebody. With wonderment. Oh. With wonderment. Oh, it oh. wasn't a dream. So he starts removing her clothing, and it's hard because there's a reason they call it dead weight. Yeah. Dead person is well. hard to move around, especially when you are a wee little stripling of a person. But he's very pleased with this whole situation. Yeah. She can't say no to him. And previously, he's kind of told her you know I like you I kind of am interested in you and she's like I only think of you as a friend yeah a very tiny little man friend so she totally friend zoned him and now he's like we can't do that anymore lady you are all mine you belong to me that's right he had that possessive feeling that we sometimes see in cannibals with that feeling of like now you are not only mine you're going to become a part of me forever you know, it's, I think, very interesting that before he got to this point with her, though, he had a moment where mm. he absolutely panicked and thought about calling the cops. He thought about mm. just saying, this has happened and you know, giving them whatever story he was going to make up. And then he stopped himself from doing that and said to himself, don't be stupid. You've been waiting for this for 32, 32 years. years. That moment was really kind of like the defining moment of this whole thing because this is what allowed him to move forward and actually carry out the cannibalism aspect of it and the raping of her dead body the necrophilia portion of it so Mm -hmm. these things that he'd wanted his whole life he almost didn't get because he had that like knee-jerk moment of like wanting to do the right thing and turning himself in And he did for a moment feel genuine remorse. Yes. Like he was looking at her and thinking, oh my God, look what I've done to my friend. This is terrible. Like you said, but at the same time, it's like, but here we are with the moment of culmination Uh of a really a life of fantasy. And how often does it happen in the real world where when you have a really messed up fantasy that you can make it come true? It's very, very rare. Yeah. Armin. (laughs) Exactly. And this really is up there in the same category in the sense of such a specific fetish. That's right. And such a specific paraphilia where, you know, Armin Mivas had this thing and then he met the person who could allow him to do what he wanted to do. Once he kind of got his bearings, so to speak, with this, I mentioned that he raped her dead body so he went on to commit the necrophilia act with her and once that was done is when he just jumped right into phase two which was the cannibalism so he says this i touched her hip and wondered where i should bite first he chooses her right buttock to start with he found it difficult to bite into he's a fledgling cannibal he's never done this before I just like Armin, again, it's like you think it's going to be easy, don't you, with your fucking German chompers, but it's not so easy when you try it. And I think Issei found the same thing. 
And so just a little warning to those of you who have delicate stomachs, the next few minutes will feature graphic descriptions of bodies being cannibalized. They're like, hurry up and give it to us already. They're like salivating around long enough. I know, right? Just telling you, if that bothers you, you shouldn't fucking know by now. You're in the wrong place. Yeah, they're fine. Okay, they're fine. So here's what happens. So he started with getting a knife and because, of course, the teeth don't work. Yeah. And he stabs and kind of slashes a little into her buttocks and he cuts into it and he notes immediately that, you know, it takes a long time to get down to, quote, the meat. Yeah. And that her fat, as fat does, has the consistency and appearance of yellow corn. Yeah, yellow corn. It's really not how I would have envisioned it, but really no, it makes I, so much sense. And that's what it looked like. It looks like corn. It's gross. That is so, really, really gross. Like, I actually really like disgusting. corn. and I don't like corn now. I don't and I will want to have again. creamed corn. We'll and I love creamed corn. corn. I love corn and everything. So he smelled this corny fat appearance and he noticed that it had no smell. So he continued to cut deeper into her buttock and then he found her muscle. And at that point, he cut a chunk and he put it in his mouth. And he said, it melted in my mouth like raw tuna in a sushi restaurant. He described it as soft and odorless like tuna. I mean, I guess fresh caught, if you're talking about like a fresh caught tuna, maybe. Mm -hmm. He's talking about like, if you go into like a really nice sushi restaurant, it doesn't yeah. smell like anything. Yeah. The fact, though, that he ate her raw. He said there was nothing more delicious. And he even took the time to look into her dead eyes to tell her that. Well, I'm sure she really fucking appreciated that. I Thanks, wasn't man. so keen on the getting shot. But now that you tell me this, I, I feel so much better about the situation. Yeah. Thank you, Issei, for really fucking putting it in some fucking context. It's really just a wash at this point now. Yeah. But I will say... That I was relieved to know that we don't taste like chicken. I have a, a red flag Yeah. later about how we really do taste. Oh. So stay tuned, listener, and you'll know what your flavor is. <laughs> anyway, he continues <laughs> on his culinary tour of this poor human. And he's now, he's sort of had his first little nods of her. He starts to really kind of get down to business. So he gets out an electric carving knife and starts cutting her into parts. Like a, like you do a turkey. Like you would a turkey or, a, you know, a lamb or, you know, like a, a suckling pig or just, you know, anything delicious that you wanted to eat. And he cuts her up like he's going to eat her because he's going to eat her. So he lays out strips of flesh that he plans to store and then eat later. He eats a few raw here and there, like you do when you're making a pie and you just want to eat a few blueberries. Hmm. Everyone here listening is like, never eating blueberries again. Thanks, bitch. (laughs) Sorry. So he also took a few pieces of her and this was where he didn't eat her raw. He actually had a little meal of fried human flesh with mustard. Yeah, mustard was like a major condiment for him. He really did like his mustard. Yeah. French is mustard. and Dijon. It's just a sophisticated Grey Poupon. way to meet a person. <laughs> Pardon me. Grey Poupon. <laughs> Do you have any Grey Poupon? Oh my God. It makes everything fancy. Even cannibalism. <laughs> you know, mustard does taste. It's just like butter. It makes everything taste fantastic. Yes. But 
Anyway, he took photos of her corpse. Oh my God. The photos are so... It's it's stages of eating. Yeah, it's very terrible. It, it it's, it's very terrible. If you look at it, just be a uh, know that you can't unlook at it. And of course, everyone who's listening is just they're like, like googling, googling it right now. Googling. Um, oh, that's exactly what I did. I was like, mm-hmm. show me more. Yeah, I need to see. More. A, Usually, I'm not like you know what we said. I didn't look at the Nicole Brown Simpson thing when we did that. Mm-hmm. I, there are a few I haven't looked at, but this one I was just like, I gotta see this. It's quite amazing what you it, can do to another person. It really is. Yes. He noted that when he hugged her, her body, her torso, that she, quote, lets out a breath. Uh-huh. That's her lungs sort of expanding and moving, and that's disgusting. It's also known as a death rattle. Death rattle. That's very true. It's like the last of the, the, the breath being moved and squeezed out of the lungs. <sighs> ah. And as he cooked and ate more of her over the the next hours and days, he listened to that recording that he'd made of her reading the poem. When he finished eating parts of her, he he used her underwear as a napkin to wipe his mouth. How resourceful. It's just everything that he does just gets grosser and grosser. He's disgusting. he is disgusting. Any way that he can find to like denigrate her even more, he finds it. He cuts off a breast and tries to bake it, but it's very greasy, which doesn't surprise me given what breast tissue is mostly made of, which well, is fat. You have to consider that what a breast is actually for. I mean, I know that some people find them just so fun to look at. You know, I mean, they're a fucking a giant milk duct. <laughs> they're a giant milk duct surrounded by protective fat. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah, we've taken the fun out of tits as well. (laughs) All the men and they're they're like, God damn it. Oh, there goes my boner forever. (laughs) Sorry, dudes. Uh, Sorry. If you really stop and think about what it's made of, of course, it's not going to be bakeable. You say maybe you poach it. I don't know. I don't think (laughs) I just don't think in general that you don't braise it. Don't. Yeah. I don't think, I think it would just kind of melt. But he did find that he preferred her thighs. And if you Mm -hmm. think about that thighs are a large piece of muscle, that makes a lot of sense. But it makes sense that there would be pieces of the body that wouldn't be as good as others. And so he definitely had his favorites. He actually took the time to experiment too. Yes. One of his favorites was her tongue. Oh dear. And her neck. Oh. He really liked the neck. How do you eat neck? I don't eat neck at all. No, no, you personally, but you in. Oh, the, well, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page with that. You're like, I don't eat neck, bitch. <laughs> I don't eat neck. <laughs> don't mistake me for some neck eating asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Those other neck eaters. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> but- <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that you ate neck. <laughs> but I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like the neck would be tender. Yeah, like it's, I think when I grab my own neck, it is a lot of gristle, you know, it's... Yeah, I mean, you've got your, like, sternocleidomastoid. Jesus Christ, you just busted out that fucking SAT where I don't even know what that is. You're welcome. It's the thing that connects your sternum Mm. to your clavicle, to your mastoid process. Yeah, sure it does. It does. Anatomy (laughs) lesson for the day. (laughs) Speaking of anatomy, at this point, Issei is completely exhausted he has basically spent the last probably 24 hours with her body he has 
had sex with it. You know what? I don't want to say had sex with it. I hate that phrase. No, I hate when people talk about her. had sex with it. He raped her body. Yeah. He cut up her body. Yes. He talked to her body. Um, he hugged her body. Slept next to it. Oh, Lord. He took some pieces to bed and slept with it. Now, it's not going to not leave blood stains everywhere, if you know what I mean. Because when you've got chunks of a dead body, that's something that's it's going to leave a mark. And it left many marks. Yeah. So, you know, he took parts of her body to bed, including her head, Ugh. and slept with them. Imagine and waking up the, to that. Imagine waking up to that. Imagine waking up in that moment that you have where you wake up in the morning where you're just kind of like emerging from sleep and you just for a second have to remember who and where and what you are. You're like, this wasn't a dream? Oh, oh there's a head. Hooray. I wonder if he was hooray or holy shit. Or what did I do? Gotta be. I would think for at least a hot second, there's gotta be an oh shit moment. I think the oh shit moment comes a few days later when she starts to get a little bit less kind of fresh. Yeah. But we're not at that oh shit moment yet. So he slept with it. He woke up. And he thought when he went to sleep that night that when he woke up the next morning, he'd have to get rid of the evidence and get rid of what was left of her body. But when he woke up the next day, what was left of her did not smell and there were not yet massive signs of decomposition. So he continued on his culinary exploration of her. One of the parts in particular that he tried on that second day was her arm. That arm that had fascinated him so deeply when it shone with its delicate whiteness in the classroom next to him. He said he chewed on it all the way from the underarm to the elbow. And he said, I had no idea that it would taste so good. Speechless. That doesn't happen. Thanks, Tiny. Thanks, Tiny. Here we are because of you. (laughs) Now, this is the part that I don't really want to say, but I'm going to say anyway, because this is what you're here for. So imagine, if you will, that you are Issei Sagawa and you have, through your actions, achieved the manifestation of a fantasy that has tortured you your whole life long. You have this body at your disposal and you've always wanted to know what all the different parts of the human body tastes like. And so his curiosity extended to even parts that were taboo. And when you break taboos, there's a little kind of frisson of excitement that comes around breaking taboos. And I think that probably happened here because he decided he was curious about some of the body parts that were a little more repulsive. So he decided to go ahead and so he cut out her anus he put it in his mouth but the smell overpowered him so he spit it out Uh, he tried to fry it and that did not diminish the general odor that you would expect that would come from an anus and so he gave it up and he put it basically back where he found it I want to note for the record that there's a reason that you don't see fried anus, <laughs> baked anus, roasted anus, sauteed anus, anus in hollandaise sauce, slow cooked anus. anus. Pie. That's right. There's a reason we don't see this as a general thing, and it's because anuses don't taste good. So, I, I mean, I, it's great to indulge your curiosity, especially in these moments where, you know, this isn't going to come around again. So, if you want to know what a butthole tastes like, this is your opportunity, really. Um, I think you I could achieve knowing what it tastes like without murdering someone. 
I think if the other I, person was willing to let it be tasted. When I say what a butthole tastes like, what I mean is like to consume an actual asshole. Oh, I see. Not, to like actually yeah. have the whole yeah, experience not, of the yeah, asshole. Not just like the flavor of it, but the the consumption of it. And so, you know, it's a... Uh, it's going to be a real tough thing to chew on, like a like an overcooked calamari. Yeah. But anus is a general rule, not something that you would expect to taste good. And without any surprises, that is the result of his little experiment. Woo! Glad we got by that one, everybody. So now we're kind of a few days down the track now. We're about 48 hours into this event and by this time Renee's body has started to decompose as you would expect and this is also hastened by the opening of the body you know the exposing of the body to air Mm. and at this point you know we've got a lot of flies that are coming around her and so he says like the honeymoon's over we're gonna have to take care of some business yeah he buys a hatchet to chop her into pieces because the uh, the electric knife can only go so far when it comes to bone. And he has two suitcases, two identical suitcases that he's purchased specifically for the purpose of removing her. So if you had any doubt about his premeditation, the purchasing of the two identical suitcases and the hatchet should, you know, kind of seal the deal. The last thing that he did before he completely took her apart and put her away in these suitcases was that he explored her internal organs and he noted that the digestive acids actually stung his hands. Yeah, he, if he felt like it was burning him. Good. I'm fucking glad to hear that. I hope that every tiny cut he had on his hands burnt like a motherfucker. Yeah, hello. Yeah, asshole. He then used the hatchet to cut off her head. At this point, if you have ventured into the dark underbelly of the internet and you have seen pictures of what she looked like it was very evident that he had eaten several parts of her face so mm-hmm. as we mentioned her nose was a very important part for him he liked the sound of the cartilage crunching like chips and like ch- exactly like chips if you have which- to put it into context and I, mean, I don't mean to be gross about that but if you like a crunch factor with things and that's why he liked that he liked that crunchy taste. Yeah. And he also had thought so much about chewing on her lips. And so he removed them and set them aside for later. There's a lot of the, in, the inside of her face that's very clear by now. Mm-hmm. He also, as we said, he's very fascinated by her tongue. You know, he takes it out. He actually puts it in his own mouth and watches himself chewing it while looking in a mirror. As you and do. As you do. And then he apparently went for her her eyes. Yes. If you look at the pictures of her later on, it's like there are parts of her body that are literally down to the bone. Yes. It's surprising when you see one of her legs is from the knee down, almost completely intact. Yes. And then from the knee to the hip. Yep. Completely skeletonized. It's just femur. Yes. And then it's her body starts again at the hip. So it's a remarkable piece of, of dismemberment. There's this moment when he is getting her ready to put in the suitcases where her head is separated from her body and he grabs her by the hair oh. and he holds her head up and hangs it in front of him. 
And this is an experience that later caused him to say, this is when I realized I am a cannibal. Oh, it would. Wow. It wasn't when you were eating her at any other point. Yeah. But she's in pieces and he needs to get rid of her real quick. And that he does. So he puts her remains into two large suitcases and he gets a cab. And this is a couple of days after the murder. So this is around the 13th of June. I've read the 13th and the 14th. There have been some conflicting articles on that. So we'll just say around the 13th. And he hails a cab. Cab comes and picks it up. Realizes that, hey, these suitcases are really heavy. And he's just kind of like, oh, supposedly jokes. Hey, is there a dead body in there? And (laughs) he takes him to the Bois de Boulogne Lake. And apparently he loved this lake. And so he mm-hmm. felt like there was a, a like a meaning behind it. And well, it's this huge park. It's this like yeah. 2000 acre park where like the kings and queens of France used to like have their freaking parties. And so did he say. And <laughs> he sure fucking did. And so the cab driver drops him off and witnesses all agree on the same thing. There was this very small smartly dressed, tiny Asian man who is dragging two very large suitcases toward the lake. And, you know, we're talking you know, early 80s here, right? So this is before people got smart and had the, the wheels that turn all the way around and can do a little spin. This is when you carried your freaking luggage, okay? And he couldn't carry it, so he was dragging it. And mm-hmm. people were like, well, that's an odd thing to do at a later part of the day. And people saw him struggling, just this little man dragging these suitcases, and he stops to take a little rest on a bench. And so when he stops, he reportedly kind of dozes off because it's really hard when you're four foot nine to drag two suitcases filled with a body. You gotta stop and have a nap. You have to have a nap. You're small. You replenish your wee muscles. Yes, exactly. You're weak. We've already established this. He stops and he takes a little siesta right there and awakens to somebody checking out these bleeding suitcases. The suitcases are bleeding. The fucking suitcases are bleeding. Dude, I just can't. And so... So the guy who is checking him out is like, hey, are these yours? And he, and instinctively, Issei says, no. Like, he should have maybe said yes. His words, he should have said yes in hindsight because maybe the guy wouldn't have opened it. But still, if he had said yes, then, well, I mean, the suitcases are still bleeding. So mm-hmm. there's that. And he says no. And he gets up and he calmly walks away. The guy opens it. And there's Renee. Just... Imagine being the person who opens that suitcase, who's so not fucking expecting that. Maybe you had a nice fucking lunch and a great bottle of wine and you were just hanging out. It was just a great day. There's a foot in the suitcase. What the fuck? And it's bleeding. And so anyway, police get called. They come out. And of course, from there on out, it just becomes an enormous investigation because Issei walked off into the darkness, he just kind of disappeared for a couple of days. The police did not know who this luggage belonged to. And they didn't even know who the victim was because she was so mutilated that they couldn't identify her. The police took all of the statements from the witnesses. 
they all agreed that it was a very short Asian man who was dressed well. And the police did their little sweep of the area and Mm -hmm. finally closed in on Issei when the uh, taxi driver came forward and said, Mm -hmm. this is where I picked up this man. And they kind of waited for him to come out. And as soon as they found him, he was arrested about 48 hours after the suitcases were opened. Imagine when you open those suitcases and you see what's inside. I can imagine there's like this moment of unreality where you know what you're looking at, but at the same time, your brain's like, I can't possibly be seeing I can't process this as a real fucking thing. But at the same time, you're like, those are body parts. Like your brain's like, I know exactly what that is. Those are body parts. And really, though, this was just the beginning. The arrest of Issei was just the beginning. The finding her in the suitcases was just the beginning. When they took the remains to be autopsied, they were able to determine that the cause of death was the gunshot. So Mm -hmm. there's the small mercy that hopefully it was quick in that way. As soon as they arrested Issei, he gave up very quickly. He wasn't hard to interrogate. He wasn't, he wasn't some tough guy who was not going to give it up. And he told the police, I killed her to eat her flesh. (laughs) Just laying it out there. Just so upfront. He says all of this and the police, they're doing their investigation and they're finding in his home just unimaginable evidence. I mean, there are paper plates and regular plates that have her body parts on them. There is all laid out like a meal. There's just everything everywhere. There's Mm -hmm. in his refrigerator. There are huge cuts of human flesh in that fridge. And so just blood all over the apartment. This apartment is just an extremely active crime scene. Mm -hmm. And. And of course you have the absolute confession from him. He's very upfront. Yeah. And he didn't deny a thing about it. He was just like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I did it. And this is why I, I, I did it so that, you know, I could eat her flesh. And it goes back to what he said right at the start when he was watching, you know, the prostitutes cleaning their situation and holding the rifle to the back of their heads that like he knew that when he pulled the trigger that would shatter his life forever he knew that that would happen there was no doubt in his mind there wasn't any i think his getting away with it was very half-assed like the attempt to get away with it to carry the fucking suitcases down to the lake like even if he had managed to get them into the lake without being seen right yeah this is an extremely heavily used place. I was just going to say, I mean, there's like a floating restaurant on this lake. It's right. not like some desolate place where people don't go. Like it's heavily populated. Exactly. And <laughs> it's it's not a, a shitty ass lake. It's a nice lake where people go boating and they oh. like they experience the lake. So he wasn't really trying to hide it. And if he was, he was doing a profoundly shitty job at it. <laughs> he sucked. He sucked ass at it. So anyway, he was appointed oh, a very good he lawyer. He did, though. He what? Sucked ass. <laughs> oh, my God. God, we're awful fucking yeah, bitches. horrible people. So remember that Issei has a very wealthy father. He is able to find a very good lawyer who is appointed for Issei's defense. He's held for two years during the pretrial period. Eventually, a judge named Jean-Louis Brugier, welcome France, (laughs) 
The friends are like tip of the hat. So they actually found him to be legally insane and not fit to stand trial. Uh, I have such a hard time with this. I do too, because of the amount of premeditation. Seriously, like legally insane people do not. Anyway, whatever, fucking asshole. So the judge orders that Issei should be held indefinitely in a mental institution. Soon thereafter, a Japanese author visits and talks to Issei Sagawa and then publishes this account of the murder, which led Sagawa to get a lot of public attention. And suddenly the notoriety just exploded. There were several reasons why this might have happened, but the French government finally decided to deport Issei Sagawa to Japan. The publicity and notoriety and super macabre sort of celebrity status that he held was probably one of the reasons the authorities were really eager to get rid of him. Yeah. And also the French people weren't trying to pay for this guy's mental health. I mean, imagine, you know, he's come to this country and yes, he was a foreign exchange student, as was Renee, and he murders her. They're not really down for it. Like they want him out of there. They're not looking to try to help him out. No. They're like, get this guy the hell out of our country. Yeah. Piss off. So here's where things get real fucked up legal wise, though. Here's what happens. When he gets to Japan, he's immediately sent to the Tokyo Metropolitan Matsuzawa Hospital. And he gets examined by a whole bunch of psychologists. They talk to him. They conduct all these psychological tests and interviews. And they concluded that he was indeed sane at the time of the murder. And that the motive behind Renee's murder was sexual perversion. So now that he's left France, the charges against him are dropped. The court documents are all sealed and they don't get released to the authorities in Japan. So the Japanese authorities don't have all of these records and court documents and all of the evidence, and they don't have a position to really detain him legally. So after 15 months in this hospital, he walks out, he checks himself out. He signs himself out. He signs himself the fuck out. Yeah. And he walks out as a free man, August 12th, 1986. Because he can. And why wouldn't you? He's if like, you could, why wouldn't you? I'm saying my shit's sealed up in France. It's nice and tight. They're never going to mm-hmm. find it mm-hmm. because they won't give it up. I am going to just go ahead and put my little signature down here and I'm out of here. I wonder if some of the sealing of the court documents might have been something to do maybe with the family wanting information to get out. That's my only possible suggestion for why they would not want to provide this information to the Japanese authorities so that they could arrest and detain Sagawa. The legalities of it are all very complicated, but the end result is he's free. Right. And this is where, in my opinion, at least in what I know about true crime, the grossest miscarriage of justice has just occurred. It's absolutely horrific because... Issei Sagawa is just, he's a free fucking guy. He's as free as you and me. Mm-hmm. And just walking around on the streets like a little freaky fucking creeper. Just anybody. Like he's literally <laughs> yeah, every guy. just 
able to do anything. Like, if you stop and really think about it, like, what he's done, what he did to Renee, how her family has obviously suffered. And this guy just gets kicked out of France because they don't want to deal with it. He's just free. He just gets to have his life. How the fuck? And he really did. He lived it the fuck up. His notoriety gave him opportunities and open doors for him that he absolutely walked through. And he wouldn't have ever had. No. If he was just a nobody who hadn't killed and eaten somebody. Right. And cannibalism, obviously, is one of the few things that is guaranteed to turn heads to get people's attention. So, and that's really what it did. So he got invitations to appear as guest speaker, Mm -hmm. commentator. He lived life as a minor celebrity. Just tons and tons of calls by the media. That's right. He did a lot of interviews. So many. Love the attention. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And still does. He loves that limelight. In 2005, he lost his parents and he wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. He paid back their creditors and then he went into public housing in Japan and went on welfare. He gave a big interview to Vice in 2011. Yes, that is a huge interview. It's so fascinating. It is. It goes real deep and he's very candid. So if you want to go deep and learn all the ins and outs of this case from the killer's own perspective, then that magazine interview is a great place yeah. to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he had a cerebral infarction, which I believe is a stroke, and was hospitalized in 2013. It he permanently had- damaged his nervous system. Shows you right for being a fucking asshole. There. That's a, I stand by that. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and as I said in my intro, you know, he is an old man now. Born post-World War II. We're talking, mm-hmm. he's, you know, he, he's in poor health and he needs assistance. He's in public housing. He has caregivers. At this point in his life, he still has the urge to eat another person before he dies. Yeah. So even, even though now. he's old and has had the cerebral infarction, um, mm-hmm. it hasn't made it so that he no longer wants to consume a human being. That wiring doesn't go away, I think. And, you know, we become more like we are as we get older. We don't become less like we are. You know, our habits become more ingrained. You know, when you think about the neurons in your brain and how the more you have an experience or the more that you have a thought or the more that you let your brain go down a certain path, the more that hardwires, the faster the neural connection goes to the point where it just becomes a permanent part of your brain. Sure. And so if you've been having these thoughts and fantasies your whole life, as you get older, they're just going to really kind of, I think it's stronger and, and more intense. I, 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 I agree. You know, one of the things to go back to how he lived up his life was he's got such a full photo album after photo album after photo album of all these experiences that he's had. And some of them include just meeting random people mm-hmm. and becoming friends and them not knowing what he did. And them just thinking he was some normal guy and just wanted to go and hang out and party and was willing to sort of foot the bill because he was making all this money off of all of his fucking fame, his semi-fame and his the and media. Books. And the oh my God, he's got, I think he's published like something like 20 books. It's just an obscene amount he's gotten recognition on. But he's got these photos where he went to Canada. He went to Mexico. He's been all over the place with these two women. They didn't know anything about his crimes and they were just kind of hanging out and doing, you know, whatever with him. And 
going out and partying and and just imagine being with them now. And if they found out that, <laughs> hey, that was us. And oh my God, we were on this trip with a cannibal. Holy shit. Jesus. I, Two words. <laughs> background check. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why the shit exists now. You know, the point is, is that, you know, he's gotten to have all of these experience, he's been free. He wasn't chained down by, you know, some shitty job he didn't like. He got paid a lot of money for these mm-hmm. books and for these interviews and got to travel on all of this. And it's just mind blowing that he was able to become this quasi just super shitty celebrity. When he really should have been rotting his ass in jail. He should have just, he honestly, he should have just, they should have given him the death penalty. Yeah. Sorry. No, not everybody's going to agree with that, but that's, but I think we can all agree that he's fucking whacked. And when he goes through and he talks about some of his experiences in one of the documentaries that I had watched, there's a really disturbing experience that he has. And this all takes place in Japan. She's a Japanese porn star and she's younger, like probably under 25. And Mm -hmm. he's older probably at least over 60 at this point he has her there for 24 hours and the deal is that she has to engage with him three times sexually sexually (laughs) and the first time he's not going to tell her anything about himself like who he is or what he's about she just knows that he's some quasi famous Thinks he, I think she thinks he's a writer of some type, and which he, he is, he a, is a writer of some type. So she isn't wrong. She just doesn't know mm-hmm. about what. What type? And so then they do their first round, and then he sits her down, and there's footage of him telling her what he's done. And her reaction is just like, what the fuck? I've got to be here for two more rounds <gasps> of this shit. And it's fucked up. Yeah, it's like a total mind fuck. That's right? a total mind fuck. Yeah. And so he's um he there's this footage, right? And she's got this blanket over her legs and she's kind of like recoiling. You can sort of see like her whole body. She's like just trying to like curl into a ball. And he's just like, Oh, she's afraid of me. I'm like, no, bro, she's fucking disgusted by you. Mm-hmm. Let's call a spade a spade. Yeah. And um, and so they do their business twice more. And when the director finally says it's over, she's like, oh, it's over. Like she couldn't wait to get out. Like it was just, it was just so off putting. So I'm like, okay, so now in addition to it, like, I mean, you're basically, you just raped this girl. Yeah. And, and she's never going to be the same. And so like the footage of when she shows up to meet him before Mm. she knows who he is or what he's about, she's kind of happy, right? She's just like got this big smile on her face and she's just like, sweet, I'm going to get it on with this famous guy or whatever. And Mm. then, at the end of it, she's like traumatized. It's it Dude, is unless so disturbing. Holding a gun to your head, you have a you you could say no. Unless somebody's yeah. holding a gun to your head, you could walk away. I don't know Holy the crap. circumstances around. What, I'm not saying she deserved it or she had it coming or anything. Yeah. She absolutely did not. I mean, clearly she didn't believe that she could. Right, and that was sufficient to keep her there. But I'm telling anyone. Please walk away if you're in a situation where you, if you can walk away, walk the fuck away. Those people are not to be fucked with, man. Holy yeah. Crap. Yeah. And so it's just a really interesting perspective. And, and it just goes to show that it's like Issei is just really, I feel like in a way, like 
you know, not to oversimplify it, but like, it's almost like he's untouchable with some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he's been able to get away with what he did to Renee and mm-hmm. he's been able to get away with living his life the way he has and then doing these things to people who are, are unassuming. Like, why would she ever go thinking that she was going to meet somebody who cannibalized right. somebody, it's you horrific. know? I and mean, putting someone in a situation like there's yeah. a level of malevolence there of like totally knowing that you're, you're planning somebody's trauma. Like, yes, exactly. Super fucked up about that. Oh, it, it's really deep. I mean, you when you watch it, you're just kind of like, what the fuck? And then like there's a, another um, portion where, you know, he's taking people through the house and kind of giving them a tour of what he's about after he's shown them all of the photo albums. And he's got these posters in his room and mm-hmm. it's now no longer Western or European women that he's interested in. He's now interested strictly in Japanese women and like has all of these posters of these women who are really young like 25. He's got something with this mid twenties thing. Mm -hmm. And there's one in particular where he points her out and he's just like, Oh, I really like her, especially when she was young. Right. And so he, he's just, he's obviously, he, he obviously is mentally ill, but it's more than that. No, it's more than that. It's there's like a deep, like far more. There's also like a deep enjoyment. Yes. At how fucked up he perceives himself to be he's like he's kind of revels in it now of like look how awful I can be I think I understand what you mean about that sort of like he's untouchable it doesn't matter how deep or how dark or how perverted he goes it's like people almost want to see how far he can go right like a kind of walking saw movie of like (laughs) yeah how bad can it be let's find out yeah let's look and let's Mm -hmm. see because he yeah it's just and that's just the tip of the iceberg with with some of the stuff that he's pulled off and been able to get away with there's not really much in the way of words for isei sagawa i just i don't know what category he falls into shitty Super shitty. <laughs> is shitty a category, like a recognized category? <laughs> if it is, it then one? he belongs there. <laughs> it's very true. There's also one quick thing about some of his other fetishes were mm. so fucking disgusting. Drinking urine. Oh. Another person's urine. To Yummy. be exact. Yeah. Like he had like a whole thing. Like he had somebody who would bottle it. For him, like her own. Jeez Louise, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. His- wow, can I get out? Can I get out on that? Like, I here you I go. Would be, you say. I believe sell my pee to somebody. Yeah, you Girl's know what? Make a living. Only fans. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, and so he would have this woman would very willingly give this up, and she's like, "Oh, here you go. It's sterile," and mm-hmm. he would consume it but then this particular woman went on to get married and then had a child and then said that he could no longer drink her urine because it was motherly and he it had a different flavor couldn't get behind that yeah flavor of mother was not flavor Flavor of mother (laughs) flavor Uh, of mother is no longer his jam flavor of mother's flower It's no good. It's no good anymore. No, I mean, yeah, he doesn't look at her as like a sexual being because the the drinking of the urine was very sexual. Very much tied to him. her sort of like this virginal kind of. Mm. Yeah, apparently it's no longer his jam. 
Do you have any fun facts? Um, I have several. You go ahead and I'll muster those up. Okay. So if you know anything about TV or storytelling, you know that a trope is a a storytelling device or a a convention, kind of a, a shortcut for describing situations that the storyteller can reasonably assume the audience will recognize. Things like boy meets girl, you know, boy falls in love with girl. Those are tropes. There's one called the cannibalism superpower. So as Issei Sagawa has said, he was attracted to Renee because of her vitality and her youth and her, she was kind of at the peak of her health. And he had always thought of himself as this little weedy, shitty, ugly little gnome, which he was. He's not wrong. And mm, he's not wrong. And he thought that, you know, there was an element of eating her energy or taking in or ingesting her her spirit or her life force. And this idea of like the cannibalism superpower is a TV trope in which the the ability of a person or a mutant, monster, alien, etc., to absorb superpowers from other characters by eating them. And so this trope or this idea is one that has easily transferred over into popular culture. We see it a lot. And the idea of taking in somebody else's energy by ingesting them, taking on their powers, I mean, that is a long, that has a long history in human cultures. Now it's transferred into TV. There is a a recent cannibal who had those same early childhood cannibalistic fantasies. His name is Dale Bollinger. He's 57, or he was at the time of his arrest, which was in 2013. Uh, he is from Canterbury, Kent in the UK, and uh, he was arrested for attempting to sexually groom a girl under the age of 16. He told police that he had fantasies about staff at a kindergarten taking some of the girls to the kitchen to eat them. <gasps> gross. It is gross. And he reportedly told police that he started having fantasies about cannibalism at the age of six. He says, by the time I got to 14, I turned into the villain of the piece and I wondered what it would be like to eat a girl. He told the police that he's never discussed these fantasies with his wife or his son. I wonder why. Mm, That's Mm. not good dinner talk. Yes. And this is a direct quote. I may be many things, but I'm not deranged. That's not true. Uh, Okay, Dale. Dale, You're pretty deranged. hmm. Okay, then if you're not deranged, what are you, pal? I'm so confused because I'm pretty sure that that is the definition of being deranged. Doesn't it seem that way? I mean, Um, that's just me probably being an emotional woman here. But look at you hysterical. I'm hysterical and emotional over it. And I just I can't get a hold of myself. Somebody slap me down. Oh, your feelings and emotions. (laughs) All my feelings, all my feefees Mm. and my emotions. (laughs) Um, Wow, that's pretty fucked up, Dale. I have another red flag. And it is about your flavor good listener i thought you were talking about my flavor you're well it's also your flavor (gasps) my friend my motherly flower motherly flavor of mother flavor of mother's flower you you don't taste like mother you taste like veal so around 1931 there was a new york times reporter named william bueller seabrook and he had you know been particularly interested in cannibalism and in the interest of research he managed to obtain from a hospital intern a chunk of human meat from the body of a healthy human killed in a car accident oh he cooked it and he ate it now then he reported as a good reporter will do 
on what it tasted like. And this is what he said. It was like good, fully developed veal, not young, but not yet beef. It was very definitely like that. And it was not like any other meat I had ever tasted. It was so nearly like good, fully developed veal that I think no person with a palate of ordinary, normal sensitiveness could distinguish it from veal. It was mild, good meat with no other sharply defined or highly characteristic tastes, such as, for instance, goat, high game and pork have. So he uses the word good way too many fucking times. He really did. Yeah, he does. But he also gets a steak as well. He says it's slightly tougher than the sort of like the prime cut, a little stringy, not too tough. He also does a roast and he cuts a central slice from it. And he says it's tender and in color, texture, smell, as well as taste, strengthened my certainty that of all the meats we habitually know, veal is the one meat to which this meat, i.e. human meat, is accurately comparable. So there you go. That is your flavor. Flavor of veal. Wow. Mm. Uh, My fun facts are not nearly as disturbing as that. No, good. I'm glad to hear it. We need a little palate cleanser on the end here. (laughs) Quite literally a palate cleanser. Yes, indeed. I have a couple of... (laughs) They're a little lighter in flavor, if you will. Yummy. Oh, In 2018, during an interview with Vice magazine, um, he had said that he wanted to be eaten by somebody. Um, Mm -hmm. He has requested any female who wants to kill him to step forward. Ladies, here's your chance. I mean, you know what? If you want to be a real hero, go for Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Mm -hmm. His dream at the time was to drown in female saliva. I can make that happen. I, can I mean, make I can that just happen. Well, like spit up a storm. Really, just spit at him until he dies. <laughs> and, um, and so, he has also expressed he's got several ways he'd like to die. So, he's got a desire to die in the armpit of his favorite Japanese actress. That's very specific. That's but okay. Very, and also, it seems like it would take a really long time. Depends on the armpit. That's true. I mean, what if she's a little oniony and she stinks? I mean, or particularly fleshy and you're able to really create a seal that cuts off the oxygen supply. You could do it in like two minutes. If it's the actress that he pointed out, I don't think that that's true. She's very petite. Uh, But his latest and newest dream was to die at the hand of another cannibal. You know, this doesn't super surprise me because vararophilia, which is the uh, paraphilia around devouring or being devoured by another person Uh, people who have this paraphilia not all the time but often they can kind of switch back and forth between the consumer and the consumed which is that's the language in this community of whether you're the consumer or whether you're the consumed consume me consume me um (laughs) a consummate consumer god Um, so oftentimes people will take on both sides of that role. It's interesting that, you know, you would think somebody with such a strong desire to eat wouldn't necessarily do that. But I suppose that's just part of the part of the fun little paraphilia. Yeah. I mean, I, like you say, a key for every lock. Good. My final fun fact, which I thought was actually I kind of stumbled across this by accident. There was a petition that was started about two years ago, and it's on the change.org website. It's calling for him to be brought to justice. And 
apparently like when you get to 500 signatures, it's more likely to be featured in like the recommendations that people get. Oh, currently stands at 341 signatures. So if you guys out there want to do something about oh. this, you know what? I'd say get after it and go sign that petition. It's real easy to find change.org. Sign it. Sign it. <laughs> do it. Do it. Well, just do it. Just do it. Just sign it. Just yeah. take him to justice. And at this point, Issei has said that living in like general society with the kind of reputation that he has, mm-hmm. has been a very large punishment, which I mean, I guess to some degree might be true, but he's also been allowed to live his life and he's also currently living under an name. So it's really not like, I mean, I think he's recognizable in the sense of that he's four foot nine and he has a very specific look to him. When you see him, you will know him. And so in that way, I think it would be hard to run from who you are. But at the end of the day, like, I mean, you still got to live your life and you're living on the outskirts of Tokyo and you're not going by your real name. Not a lot of life there. No, definitely not. Good. <laughs> Good. That's what I have to Hope say. Hope you're suffering. That. Good. I hope it sucks for you. <laughs> yeah, that should be your punishment. The case of Issei Sagawa is notorious not for quantity, as he murdered only one victim but for the manner of that crime and for his actions afterward. Cannibalism is a head-turner when it comes to murder stories, with notoriety practically a guarantee. But there cannot be a cannibal without a person who gets cannibalized. And with very few exceptions, people don't voluntarily give up their body parts for consumption by another. As soon as we talk about murder cannibalism, we're talking theft. Not only of another person's body, but of their life, their spirit, their aspirations and experiences, their contributions to their communities and all the good they could have done in the world. All the ripples of their future actions are stilled forever to satisfy the ravenous appetites of a hungry human predator. With post-mortem mutilation and cannibalism, another kind of theft occurs, that of memory. Renee Hartvelt's family and friends will forever link in their minds the memory of her life with the circumstances of her death. Issei Sagawa stole peace and comfort from the people who loved her. Renee died instantly when Sagawa shot her in the back of the neck with a rifle. She would die never knowing what would happen to her earthly remains at the hands of her slight, brilliant, introverted friend. She would die never knowing that decades later, the image of her cut-up body laid out on a Paris autopsy table would be just a few clicks away from anyone's eyes. It's a curse that Renee was murdered, and it's a blessing that she died unknowing of all that would come after. She died reading a poem in her native language, feeling comfortable and relaxed in the home of a friend who she liked and trusted. She died at the peak of her health and beauty and vitality and confidence, which was, of course, why her killer chose her. Issei Sagawa stole Renee's life and intended to steal her energy, her spirit, to feed on her very essence like a nasty little vampire. But despite his intentions, all Sagawa got was her flesh. And that which defined Renee Hartfelt always remained inaccessible to him, forever out of his reach. Issei Sagawa got dealt shitty cards, but not as shitty as some. 
His self-hatred became a justification for doing whatever he wanted. As much as Issei Sagawa professed to hate himself, he thought only of his own needs and his own wants when he killed and ate Rene Hardevelt. Now at the end of his life, Issei Sagawa is decrepit and infirm, reliant on others, his body and mind shrinking and collapsing with weakness and age. He'll get smaller and smaller with every passing day, drying out, shriveling up, until he vanishes forever from the world. You've been listening to Homicide Worldwide. fucking sense Issei would tell you that particular area of any, any body creature, any, any, any creature's any creature, body yeah isn't going to be delicious no it's not it's not anything that shit comes out of is going to taste bad no see, as or, a person who cannot handle corn off oh the yeah top, he hates corn that just i cannot i just so when i heard that description i just immediately was just <laughs> knew like it. 